Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. The biggest secret of the best traders in the world is that they're just like everyone else. However, they've worked hard to learn the markets and discover what works and what doesn't. But how can you hear about these journeys and get in on the strategies and tactics they use? You can do it by listening to Chat with Traders. Here's your host, Aaron Fifield. Hey there, what's up guys? Welcome to episode 40 of the Chat with Traders podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. Um, I know I always say this, but I really do appreciate it. So great to have you with me. Now, this week on the show, I'm joined by Brian Weiner. And to put it quite simply, he's a man just crazy about options. So options, guys, you're in for a real treat. And I should probably admit, there were a few moments where my lack of knowledge on options is probably quite obvious. But Brian will and truly delivered. So it's an all-round great episode. Um, I think you're really going to pull a lot of value from this. So just to give a little background on Brian, he's been actively trading for just over 15 years. And what's particularly interesting about him is how he's been involved with markets from a number of various angles. And what I mean by this is he originally started out as a market maker on the floor of the CME. And by the way, has some great stories which he shares during the interview. From there, he'd later joined Hayne Bodek for the rise and the fall of Trade Machines, which was essentially a black box startup which was ruined due to HFT manipulative orders. Uh, Brian speaks a little bit about this during the interview also, which is quite interesting. And some of the things he picked up and learned from Hayne Bodek directly um, about market structure, uh, micro pricing and those types of things. So very interesting stuff. And nowadays, Brian is the quantitative options specialist on the Sanglucci team, as well as an independent trader. Uh, during the interview, we, of course, go right into Brian's journey of how he got to where he is now, as well as plenty of discussion about options markets, including how options have evolved over time, the various types of options traders and where their edge exists, and a few things aspiring options traders need to be aware of. Now, once you get through this interview, if you're still hungry for more, be sure to go visit the new products page at the Chat with Traders website, which is just chatwithtraders.com forward slash products. So on this page, you'll find a free ebook there titled The One Thing I Wish Someone Would Have Told Me Before I Started Trading, which is about 30 pages in length 
and includes the curated responses from many proven traders. At this page, you'll also find a premium ebook, which is just $15, and that's titled Why Most Traders Never Succeed, which I've received a ton of great feedback on, so if you haven't had a chance to read this already, I strongly encourage you to do so. Plus, as of last week, you can now get access to one-on-one trading coaches. There's currently three coaches, all of which have appeared on the podcast in the past. And I mean, it's very simple, guys. They're there to help you, so don't ignore this opportunity to get the guidance you need from a pro trader. So you can get more info on all of this at chatwithtraders.com forward slash products. Okay, now time to dig into the interview. I'm your host, Aaron Firefield, and here is this week's guest, Brian Weiner. Brian, what's up, man? Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Thanks, brother. I'm good. Good. Great to hear. I mean, thank you very much for doing this and, and taking the time to do this. I mean, I've really been looking forward to it. And mainly because I think we're going to get into some pretty intense discussion around options. Um, but before we get there, I'm really keen to break down your last 15 years or so as a trader, especially because I know you've had to almost like reinvent yourself a few times over. So let's start with your first experience as a trader on the floor of the CME. So tell us, how did you wind up there? And also, what were you doing prior to landing this gig? Right. Um, so I was at Georgetown in D.C. Uh, I graduated in 2000. Uh, before I graduated, I had really no idea what I was going to do with my life. I was in the business school. And, um, you know, people do investment banking and consulting. And, uh, but I took an options class, and I actually really enjoyed it, partly because of the math, and then partly because uh, I got flown down to Chicago to, um, you know, take an interview. And um, I went down to the SIBO first, the Chicago Board Options Exchange, and I was like, what is this place? Um, you know, I'd seen, you know, movies like Ferris Bueller's and Trading Places, but when you're on the floor for the first time, you're like, wow, what is this? And it's, it was just like, yes, I want to do this. Tell me more. And, uh, you know, I got a job offer. Um, and that was my only job offer, and I never wanted to go to Chicago, but I was like, you know what? Who cares? I want to be a trader, so an options trader specifically. So, uh, yeah. So, I, you know, I, that was really the reason why uh, I landed on the floor is because I took a class at school, and you know, and I was like, this looks awesome. <laughs> Let's do it. And they hired me, and I was there. Nice, very cool. So, thinking back, do you recall what it was that initially attracted you to markets and trading? Um, I, it was different for me because it wasn't about being a trader. It was about loving options. And I'm kind of, you know, I've always been, uh, never been diagnosed with ADD, but I'm certainly, uh, in my twenties was definitely hyperactive. Like, you know, definitely had, uh, attention issues uh i guess you know partly in my head partly because i'm into dance music and you know i was crazy when i was in my 20s but um you know that was second to loving options um just the whole math behind it i'm a math guy um so i was able to kind of like marry together trading or actually more so uh option theory with uh something that would put my energy into use and competition and I was never really great at anything uh, competitive uh, athletically, but this was kind of like a quasi-type uh, athletic competition. Um, so, you know, you learn that 
later on when you're actually as a trader, not as a trainee, but as a trader, it just kind of just married different things in my life and it just made sense. And I was lucky I fell into it because investment banking and consulting had no, no appeal to me. Um, you know, everyone else, 90% of the people in my business school were doing that. And I am very thankful that I found something that I really enjoyed versus people killing themselves. Although you can make a lot of money, it just, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Yeah, no doubt. So, so tell us, you've just got this job trading in the pit. First weekend, what were your thoughts? Like, was it a complete shock to the system or was it exactly like you'd anticipated it would be? Right. So, you know, you, when you get hired, your your clerk slash trainee, same thing. And you are um, basically doing pit-related stuff or um, hedging-related stuff. Either you're sent down to the floor or you're hedging someone's floor position upstairs. So there's two different types of things. Either way, you you are chicken with your head cut off. So if you're – say you're on the floor, you are um, – giving the trader um, regularly updated risk sheets of their different Greeks, um, their positions, and uh, or you're taking their trading cards and processing them through the exchange. Both have pressure, and you have no idea what you're even giving to them. Uh, the trading cards are maybe even easier, but if you forget, you don't know, you know you're kind of still kind of clueless, but you're doing the best you can. And it's so loud, and you have all these dudes with coats on they're acting crazy clerks that have been down there forever like thinking you're an idiot because you're like taking up wasting their time and waiting for you to process something so it's that alone is like hectic now if you're upstairs all of a sudden you're um say a guy um you know this was in 2000 so the end of the internet bubble you know qualcomm yahoo guys are doing floor uh trades on the floor and their deltas are coming upstairs so you you're looking at the screen you know you have to some guy made a trade bought like 500 qualcomm calls you have to sell 50,000 share sell 25,000 shares of qualcomm so that you're putting an order in into some level two um you know either you're selling the bid or putting an offer in you know the first thing you do kind of is you're just selling the bid because you don't want to fuck around. But uh, and we're trading in teenies too, so every sixteen cents, so it's not even in decimals. So it's like you're just going from zero to sixty upstairs as well. But it's more like you're physically, you know, costing the company money or not. And uh, they'll kind of test you sometimes. You know, I some order was duplicated. I remember, I still remember to this day from fifteen years ago, an order was uh, duplicated. The system screwed up. And uh, like the head trader of the entire company is like, Ween, which is my nickname and my badge on the floor. He's like, that was a fucking duplicate. Get rid of that. I'm like, I'm like, shit. I'm like, you know, but then you kind of develop an attitude like you can't yell at me. Uh, You know, I ended up flipping that like 25,000 shares for a teeny. So that's like, you know, making twenty five hundred. $4,000 $4,000 or whatever the case may be, but it's like you kind of build up some respect for yourself once you don't have anyone yelling at you or, you know, I mean, that's kind of the key. It's like, I don't know if you're familiar, you're probably not with football, but uh, American football, but if you're an offensive lineman, the way that you know you're doing well is if no one's saying anything about your, no one's calling your name, no one's making fun, no one's uh, commenting about your performance. So, you know, 
those are the challenges uh, that I faced. And uh, I think I did pretty well with them. I was thrown in the pit after like nine months uh, on the job. But, you know, you, you go through both cycles. You're upstairs hedging. You're learning about option stuff and about hedging deltas and position stuff. And then you're on the floor learning about what it's like being on the floor. So, again, both at the beginning, you're chicken with your head cut off and you, you try to adapt as best as possible. And they recruit you because you seem like someone that's smart enough to handle the stress. And that's what they saw in me and other people that were in my uh, trader trainee program. So a lot of floor traders or companies, trading companies have classes like, you know, maybe two to 10 uh, new traders every year. And they hope, you know, that they have maybe 50% of the people can become traders. There's a lot of turnover though too, but you know, it's uh, you know, that's how they, they weed out the uh, traders and, and the, those that can't trade. Sure. Okay. So just so we're clear on that, were you actually making buy and sell decisions uh, for yourself um, while you were on the floor of the, um, the trading exchange or were you just sort of executing orders that um, other people were um, trying to tell you to do? Right. So, you know, just to, just to clarify, when you're a trainee or a clerk, you're hedging people's stuff and you're just doing the, the hedging stuff. But when you're on the floor, um, say I'm, I'm a trader now, um, you know, I am market making. So I am making my own decisions. No one's telling me what to do. They might say my position manager uh, might be like, we need to buy some gamma. We need to buy some options or we need to sell some options. We are, we're long too much or we're short too much. So then I will change my markets and I'll do whatever I can to, um, achieve those goals until, you know, we're back at a, at a, at a media, at a happy medium until we're, we're at an equilibrium and I can trade around. So, and what I mean by that is, you know, as a market maker, I'm trying to buy low, sell high, just like someone trading stock, but I'm trying to do that in terms of volatility. Um, and that's uh, very different. Uh, it's three-dimensional. And, um, you know, so I am making these markets with the goal of collecting this spread and, um, you know, having a neutral position. But there's different orders coming into the pit from brokers. So again, there's a difference between a broker and, and a market maker slash trader. And, you know, we're going to take the other side of that trade that the broker has that came from Merrill Lynch or whatever the case may be, Goldman Sachs. I will be the counterparty, but I need to get paid um, in terms of edge. And we quantify that in volatility points, Vega points, uh, more or less. Um, so... I am making decisions that will maximize my potential to main to keep that bid ask spread um, over time. But if my position gets too big in one direction because of the order flow, my my position manager or myself will realize I need to um, you know need to change my markets a little bit. I need, I need to to lean to selling more or buying more. And that could go from out of the money calls to out of the money puts. Um, so yeah, so just, I know very complicated there, but I'm making my own decisions unless my risk is too large. Yeah, that's excellent. Thanks thanks a lot for explaining that, Brian. And that the volatility aspect, we're definitely gonna get into that um, a lot deeper in a, in a little bit. But um, you mentioned uh, just before that, um, sort of during the first nine months was, 
sort of the initial training period, what was some of the training that you went through? Like what sort of training did you receive uh, during that initial nine months there? Yeah. Um, all types. And I, you know, it's, um, it varies from, uh, doing the back office clearing stuff, which is not really important, but it's good to know how options clear, how expiration occurs, things like that. Then you're also, um, you know, learning about, um, I guess the, the functions on the floor, um, how the exchange works, uh, you know, things like that, what could cause a fine, uh, petty things like that. Then also, you know, how to make a market, you know, how to, I mean, Mark, it's different. It's, it's fun for, I guess, your viewers to know about how it was on the floor then. Cause it right now it's just like you have parameters and you're, and if you're a market maker, you're kind of quoting, um, around a theoretical value. Um, so we had theoretical values and you got to learn how to make your market. If my value, for, say a broker comes in the pit and they want a market in some, um, say the, say the S and P 500, uh, the weekly, um, call some at the money call, you know, I see my value is 10 bucks. I might make a market nine half, 10 half. $9.50 bid, $10.50 offer. But if the market moves, I might want to change that. So, you know, you learn how to make markets and, um, and how, how positions um, affect you monetarily, um, things like that. So that's kind of like the thought process. First, you learn how to make a market, then you realize how your position um, that you have combined with how the market moves will affect the PL at the end of the day. Um, you know, and you get to a point where you feel like you can actually make those markets, um, adjust, uh, or act like a trader in the pit and make money. And I started doing that. We, uh, our, my, the trader, uh, that I was covering, that I was clerking for ended up uh, moving to San Francisco for the company, uh, to work in the, in the, I guess it's not, it's not called ARCA. Um, the Pacific Stock Exchange had uh, options on the floor. So I was actually um, kind of market making outside of the pit, going through brokers. If they had an order that I liked, I would actually um, tell that broker. And this is, it was, I don't know if it was legal or not, but they let me. So I was actually making money as a trader for the company as a clerk. Uh, so, you know, you get to, you kind of like get to a point where you feel comfortable and you're like, I need this. I need to be in the pit. Like I know what's going on. You know, so um, it's it's a training of your confidence, you know, and not everyone gets there. Um, but I mean, that that's what it is over the nine months. And uh, it's kind of like a step process. It's a step function. Um, you know, it's not not necessarily everything is smooth, but you just kind of get to a point where like, I get it. And that's move on to the next task. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that's really good. So. During that time, were there any significant events that you will probably forever remember from your time as a floor trader? Like, are there any stories you'd like to entertain us with? <laughs> I certainly have stories. Um, let's start with, uh, again, uh, a f there's a few which were uh, fun um, slash not fun. Um, I remember because of the internet bubble uh, happens um, and I was doing trades when my the trader was in San Francisco. There was a like a random uh, fifty basis point drop in interest rates, and uh, the I mean, I, I all I could feel was like a gust of wind, and 
just like it sounded like a stampede. All of a sudden, traders came out of nowhere, taking a shit, coming coming out of the walls from the break room, and spoos went up like I don't know three percent in five minutes. That was like I was like, holy shit, what this is like? This is trading. This is crazy, and um, you know, markets going wide. Um, I remember, uh, I remember nine eleven. That was, I mean, that's like the biggest story for me. Really, I was in the pit uh, as a actual trader for the company for about six months in 9-11 I mean I was like upstairs about to go downstairs the first plane hit and uh, we had a trader in New York and he's like the World Trade Center just got you know the plane went into the World Trade Center I was I, I was thinking it was a Cessna like whatever accidents I went down to the floor and you know the second plane hit and it was just like I remember being on the floor I'm like I'm not I'm protecting America's you know capitalism I'm staying on the floor but eventually they kicked me out um, you know, it was just like, I was like young and, and it was just like so patriotic and I was on an exchange. It felt so, it was just crazy because like the first day the markets opened, I've never seen, I've never been a part of trading like that. I mean, you're talking about the, the S and P flying all over the place. That was the pit that I was in S P 500. Uh, all the, you know, the option market, it was so wide. Like we made like, you know, more money than I've ever seen that day. And I felt bad about it. And it was just crazy. It was like juxtaposition of all types of emotions, but it was like, I was, you know, as weird as it sounds, I was very lucky to be a part of that. Um, you know, if anyone was going to be, someone had to, um, uh, you know, um, I remember one time, um, more just comedic stuff just to put away the nine 11 tragedy. Uh, you know, I was, uh, kind of a raver back in the day. I would, uh, I would party on Thursday, uh, come in no sleep and, uh, you know, doing raver stuff. But, um, and, uh, so I got a, you know, there was a, uh, it was in the Heim Bodex, like book dark pools. There was a quote about me doing this. It's kind of funny. It's like this, the big brokers like, Hey, ween, how much, for you to snort uh, cayenne, you know, a line of cayenne pepper. Uh, and now just to say there was like a, the cattle pit was on the same floor. So people would buy, you know, beef jerky, spicy beef jerky and like the shrapnel on the bottom, the scraps, like, you know, they're like basically dared bet me to, to snort a line of that. And I was like 200 bucks. And they were like done. If I waited two minutes, I would have got a thousand, but I was an idiot. Uh, so I did that. It was hilarious. Um, uh, you know, I was there when, um, when, uh, Globex first started and there was arbitrage between, uh, the floor and, uh, the Globex. So like basically the beginning of electronic trading and the demise of the floor trading. Um, I was late for work that day. I just met a, a girlfriend that I, I did end up dating for like three years. And that was a long, long time ago. But, uh, I was shit faced from the night before I woke up cause my clerk was like, ween, where are you? I'm like, I thought it was Saturday. And she's like, get your ass to the floor. I was like, shit. So I got to the floor and my boss is like, we'll talk about this after the close. I could have been, I was going to be fired that day. They were looking to can anyone. The floor was dying. Um, but luckily what saved my job that day, um, was that there was, a, you know, a random bid for some like six month um, option. And I basically, I made 15 grand in about two minutes. Uh, didn't even have to hedge it. 
And it was the great part was that the guy that made this, he was like the big guy in the pit, like the big market maker. He was thought he was the shit. And he made this market where he offered these options, uh, you know, for sheets for, for my theoretical value, but they were bid 75 cents over in Globex. And that like, I remember that day because, you know, I was able to celebrate with my, with my girlfriend and then my buddy after, <laughs> and he was like, they were going to fire you. I was like, I know. Um, but because of Globex and electronic trading that saved my, uh, saved my job, I, I ended up quitting like a year later to, uh, focus on electronic trading, but that was pretty apropos for electronic trading, my introduction to Globex. So those are like, those are the few of many. Yeah, no, those were excellent. Thanks a lot for sharing those. And I do remember reading that part in, uh, dark pools and I, I did have a good laugh while I was reading that, but, um, I think this kind of leads into uh, my next uh, question here. And at, at what point did you actually decide to get out of floor trading? And, and what were your reasonings for this? Yeah. Um, so I had a buddy and I'm going to go bowling with him pretty soon. But uh, I had a buddy that um, he uh, he kind of he started off at my company. My company laid people off um, right before 9-11. And um he kind of bounced around market made companies. The volatility was kind of kind of low, so it was, you know, a lot of even if you're a good trader, you know, there was a good there's a very possible chance that you were going to get canned because or laid off because the volatility was so low after 9/11. And when I what is low? Low means that you know the uh, S and P moves on average less than one percent um, a day, which is very you know from high to low. Um, the high, low volatility was very low day to day. And, um, you know, it was like the floor's coming to an end the volume's low, you know, and I, I, my buddy was working as a stock, uh, kind of like a customer market maker, which I do to this day, you know, um, while I'm making working this hedge fund stuff, but, um, you know, he was making money doing exchange arbitrage, doing, um, you know, uh, doing, um, intrinsic value arbitrage, things like that. And he was working for himself doing really well. And I wanted to go back to, to grad school because I wanted to get to New York cause I'm a Boston guy. Um, you know, and it just made sense for me to, you know, focus on getting into grad school, trading for myself. The floor is dying. Um, this looks like a good opportunity and so I went for it. You know, I was like, you know, I told my boss, I'm like, I think that's it. And, you know, it was, he was kind of happy for me because he, you know, who, who knows in six months if I would have had that opportunity. And you, you know, six months later, the other trader that was in our group quit too. And my head trader went on something else. You know, it was like, it kind of was all falling apart at the end of 2005 and then into 2006. And that's when I, quit at the beginning of 2006 okay it just made sense to me yeah yeah got it so i know around that time at some point uh you got a master's in financial mathematics so i'm curious to know like even though you'd already been trading for several years and you were doing quite well what was the advantage you saw of actually going back to study further it was it was well, two, the advantage was that I could get into a hedge fund or a trading company, and I got into trading machines with Heim. But again, it was just like how I got into trading. Like I like math. Like I love the um, pricing, the option pricing theory. It's like something that I enjoy. I love, you know, and I love it even more than I did then. And 
I just love how uh, options are priced. I love how option Greeks are calculated. I love how prices and Greeks evolve over time. It's just something that's just so elegant and sexy about it. It made more sense than getting my MBA. Um, I also fucked up on my MBA score. Like I got like a 670 or something like that. And I wanted to, you needed above a 700 to go to like a top school. And I would, and I was going to take it again, but I found out about this U Chicago financial math program. I I didn't even need a GRE if I had experience. (laughs) It kind of just worked out. Um, and it just made more sense. So that's why I took this program. Just, it seemed natural to me. Okay, sure. So you mentioned uh, trading machines there, and I'm keen to dig into that. So after graduating, you went to work at trading machines, uh, which I'm sure must have been very interesting time in your career. And for those who aren't familiar, would you like to tell us about trading machines and, and what was your role there? Yeah, so it was, I got into trading machines um, kind of in the beginning of the financial crisis. Um, I remember I was kind of finishing up grad school with my buddy had some position on, he was trying to sell ball and Bear Stearns was happening and all this crap. So it was just like a crazy time to start. It was a startup. So my role, I was not the head trader at the time. There was a head trader. He kind of sucked. Um, um, I, I did the first trade. I did the last trade. Um, I was basically the, like the, the, uh, the tech sector trader. So trade machines was a black box. Um, not, technically a market maker. We did quote at some points, but we were a takeout engine. So we would see orders, you know, um, basically customer orders uh, that were bidding or or offering limit orders and options. And we would take them if they um, offered edge, just like in the pit, you know, um, an order comes in below my theoretical value, as long as it it seemed like a good, uh, there was enough edge for that particular um, stock, you know, we would, we would trade it. And I would also, so that thing would run on its own. Then, um, at the same time, I would kind of lean the, that machine, that trading machines, um, black box. So it's kind of gray boxing. I'd be like, well, I don't think we're moving much. So I only want to sell options. So I would, I would, uh, toggle some things and be like, just sell. Um, and I would have to monitor the hedging of the stock. And that kind of li- – the, the, the demise of trading machines revolved around um, basically the, the manipulation of high-frequency traders uh, affecting order types on exchanges. And that – you know that's a 2011 to 2015 hot topic. Heim you know, is a whistleblower in that. Um, you know – so basically, I'm watching the hedger try to buy or sell stock to um, to hedge my option positions, and um, we'll forget about the HFT stuff. Puts a sour sour feel in my stomach, but um, yeah. So I'm I'm basically making sure that the uh, volatility trading that we're doing is appropriate, um, and when it's time to only buy or only sell, I toggle some switches. Uh, I might hand click too, kind of like when I was trading stocks for myself after leaving the pit. You know, if if the machine thought that something was too risky to trade, um, you know, I might be like, you know, I might override the machine, and I did really well doing that. Um, 
so yeah, so and I focused me again mainly on tech stuff because that was kind of my speed. The SP was so boring at that point. I left the pit. Um, SP is very different in the pit versus outside of the pit in terms of the action. Um, so spy was boring, cues were boring, but Amazon, Netflix, Google doing a lot of like exploration stuff. So pinning was really big in Google back in the day. Um, so doing a lot of that stuff, working on um, making new logic for executing, um, for quoting, for trying to figure out why this hedger was screwing up. That wasn't really my main thing. We had a guy that was supposed to be in, in charge of that. Um, kind of, he kind of like sucked. That's one of the problems we had. Um, you know, I remember 2000 uh, being at Trey Machines going in, it was New Year's Eve 2011 and trying to um, hedge, um, correlation hedge gold versus spy. It was such a crappy beta. But I remember just being grinding it out with Heim trying to save this damn company um, that was basically uh, ruined by HFT um, uh, manipulative orders, hide not slide orders um, that Direct Edge and and uh, Bats were the kind of the uh, the, the um, reasons behind that. So anyway, um, towards the end, trying to save the ship in the beginning, just being part of the whole fun team. Like this is like the new wave of option market making and then the slippery slide towards 2011 and, you know, trying to do the best I could. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's kind of a tragic event. <laughs> sure. Sure. I Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U S markets is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade. Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, so tell us, what was it What was it like working with Hayne Bodek? Was there anything market related that he really introduced you to, which you were maybe perhaps um, previously unaware of? Yeah, I mean, I guess market structure was something that I wasn't uh, a king of. I wasn't as I understood like exchange fees, but you know, I had I had a background for being a, a customer market maker, and he was like, "Oh, you're one of those guys," and it was fun working with him at that angle in the beginning because I was considered a barnacle from his previous position at uh, UBS. Uh, running the um, U.S. Uh, global equity option um, market 
market making platform. But um, you know, he kind of, I guess, introduced me to micro micro prices. Uh, that's kind of the main thing. Um, you know, coming from the floor where things are wide and being, um, you know, exposed, you basically just kind of trading. Uh, this, this is pre-decimal decimalization. So he kind of introduced me to decimalization, sub-penny pricing, and dark pools, and things like that. I'm like, I was so, not that I, I mean, I, I kind of caught on to it, but I was so like unaware of the battles that went into dark pools. Um, you know, I, I had traded on them uh, indirectly um, through my, you know, platform experience um, as a trader for myself. Um, for a few years while I was in grad school and never really realized where my stock was going. So we introduced that concept, kind of opened my eyes to Goldman Sachs is selling my, my um, or actually I had Merrill Lynch was selling my flow to some other person, to maybe to UBS. And it was all like, you know, he, as he calls it, exhaust. And, you know, the next guy will pick and choose if if my stock flow is good enough or my option flow is good enough and they want to keep it or not. So it was just weird that I didn't realize that the different layers um, that occurred between um, when I press a button to trade and who the final recipient is of that flow. So he basically slowed down the process from a, a customer action to the final market maker that got a piece of that pie and it was very fascinating to me, um, and I learned a lot in terms of market structure and micropricing. Um, and uh, I was kind of introduced more to correlated tradings um, with his partner, um, a very smart guy, um, Tong Wei Ko, and that was more the uh, correlation trades between the different ETFs, say, and baskets, stuff like that, which we experimented with. So that was fun. Uh, more math. I enjoyed that. Um, but yeah, so kind of aside from the volatility stuff, how to, you know, analyze the market in a different way. That's kind of Heim's main thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that type of thing is really fascinating. And I mean, I also find it very interesting and I suggest if anyone listening, um, perhaps if that got a bit, um, a bit messy there, definitely check out the book, uh, Dark Pools, uh, Heim Bodek has, uh, he, he's in that book for quite a few chapters and, and really goes, I mean, Scott Patterson, the author, really goes into depth with um, how it all sort of works and the dark pools and that type of thing. So let's keep this moving and um, let's dig into your a trading approach, um, how you're trading these days. So tell us, how would you describe your trading approach and what are some of the key things you're looking for out there in the market? All right, so... I am a market maker at heart, as we know. Um, so right now I am, and I, you know, I guess we'll turn back to when Trading Machines ended. I worked with Heim for a year um, on Trading Machines 2 and that kind of like slowed down. I had to start trading for myself. So I started being a customer market, a customer trader again, like I was during grad school. Um, and trying to market make, and I was trying to figure out what to do, and so I figured it out. I traded Apple uh, only, pretty much, uh, for two years, market making the wing options, so the uh, out of the money stuff, the stuff that doesn't move that much. But I was trying to take advantage of the fact that Apple had so much volume that I could buy twos and sell fours 
in some out of the money thing and there was so much back and forth I was able to market make with my finger which I don't know how many people were doing that for two years but it was it was great um, you know doing fairly well like six figures low six figures doing that and then when Apple split last June it totally fucked up my life um, so I tried doing the same thing in other tech names like Amazon and Tesla and Netflix and that works to a little de- somewhat of a degree but not as great so what I am doing more um, and have been working on is um, kind of doing simply um, um, like Friday uh, buying cheap options when the time is right and there's going to be a move so more of a directional trader I'm more of a directional trader now um, than I uh, than I was ever before but what I'm doing is is basically looking for that home run on a Thursday, Friday. I, I mainly just trade Thursdays and Fridays while I'm working on big picture stuff. Um, and so again, what I'm doing is I'm kind of looking at the tape and looking at charts and looking for um, a retrace or a continuation and buying a cheap option um, or uh, buying a, a cheap spread. Um, I, I might sell some other stuff, uh, sell some premium, but you tend to do much better. And I know me, like if all of a sudden if I sell an option and it goes in my face, I have to get out quick. So I don't let things go in my face. And that what, that's what made me successful in Apple for those two years. Um, you know, as a market maker, any market maker really, whether it's me clicking as a customer or market maker, market making operation, they try to keep their risk tight. Um, so being that Apple isn't there anymore and um, doesn't trade completely different when it's a hundred dollar stock, um, I trade directionally, but more lean towards again buying options, not selling them. Um, and looking for that big home run play, and I'll read the tape too, which will help defend my thesis. And I might, you know, look for certain times of the day on a Friday when I think, you know, if we market dumped out and we're leveling off, there might be some buying patterns um, around two o'clock, two thirty, something like that. I also use one of my friends is um, he has a uh, uh, a Statarp signal that I use on Thinkorswim, and I can see that. There's a reversal signal. Uh, I put you know that together with uh, with my own intuition, and then I see the tape, and I see this, you know spy is starting to catch a bid too. So that's when I'll come in and you know try to place my home run bets. And those are the main things I'm doing right now. Sure. Okay. No, that's really good. So I guess now would be a good point to dig into options a little bit deeper. So. Probably a good starting point for this would be if you could explain to us what's the reason, um, what's the real reason that options exist as a product? Like what are they, what were they originally designed for and, and what's the right reason for trading options? I mean, I know people trade them in all different ways now and, you know, they do it quite well, they make money. Um, but, but what's the real underlying reason why options exist? Sure. I mean, the first real reason was um, to hedge stock, hedge your portfolio. And that's when, like, the put was invented. And then they realized, that, you know, we should invent a call too. So, uh, kind of the put was first just to hedge 
portfolios. Then they invented the call because it's it, – you learn this in as a trader trainee like I learned on the floor. Call and a put are the same thing if you're trading volatility. Um, and so it evolved from just complete, purely hedging to – you know, all these market makers have positions because, uh, you know, if you're going to buy a put to hedge your portfolio, someone's got to sell it to you. So that's kind of how the market evolved. So the market evolved, um, you know, and for the liquidity providers that allow the portfolio managers, the institutions, the banks to hedge their customers, hedge their positions, things like that. Um, and then volatility trading existed because the market makers, you know, if they sell a call, you have to hedge it. And the underlying pricing of an option is the implied volatility. You know, I, you know, implied volatility is, I can't, we probably not going to get into that detail now, but I mean, that's just the way to quantify the value of an option on, I guess, a day-to-day -day basis. Um, Whatever the time frame may be, as you get closer to expiration, that implied volatility number gets crazy. So it's not really valid. But um, you know, that's the reason for the option market is to um, you know is to initially again just to hedge portfolios. Then you have the market makers that um, you know take the other side of the position and they're value evaluating it in terms of implied volatility. But then you know the next level is what we're used looking at currently is, you know, you trade options to hedge volatility in the market. That's where the VIX comes from. So it's kind of evolved to, you know, as hedging vol market volatility, not just market, market direction. Um, so that's kind of the third stage of why the option market exists. Okay, sure. Now that's, that that's makes a, sense. That, yeah, that's really good. So would you be able to break this down for us? And you've kind of mentioned in your previous answers, directional trading and then non-directional volatility options trading. So besides the kind of the obvious um, distinctions between the two, what are some of the other distinctions that make these two approaches significantly different? Okay. Um, well, you know, there's different types of traders. Uh, again, so we're looking at, you know, directional traders that... Um, either they want to buy, you know, calls because they think the market or that stock is going to go up. Um, they want their downside to be limited to how much premium that, that they, that they buy, or you could have, so those are, those are, um, you know, uh, premium buyers. And then there's premium sellers that have a direction. So they think the market's going up or that stock's going up. So they'll sell puts instead. So it, let out, it gives them premium um, with a bias that the stock's not going to go below that their strike price. Then you have the volatility traders that um, think that, you know, based on this implied volatility, or they might just look at simply premium price, just like uh, I was talking about the uh, the premium sellers that that trade with direction. The volatility guys are might be just be like, okay, well, based on this implied volatility of this three month option, I don't think that this three month option is going to move um, three percent a day on average. Um, I think that the implied volatility is too high. I'm going to sell a straddle or a strangle 
um, and, and collect premium, whereas maybe a volatility buyer thinks that uh, this option is too under undervalued in terms of its ability to move over the over the course of the next three months, or say it's a weekly. Um, they think that there's some activity that's going to happen, and they're going to buy options. They're going to buy a call and hedge it, or put and hedge it, or buy both the call and put at the same strike. That's the straddle, or buy a call and put at different strikes, and that's a strangle. And they're going to, you know, they're going to make money if the stock goes beyond the strike prices um, plus the premium that they paid. You know that going into greater detail, but they just think that the market's going to move in one direction. They don't care what direction it is. Uh, as long as it moves more than the option requires it to, uh, I'm going to make money. So those are the two different um, types of volatility traders, buyers and sellers, uh, I guess related very well to directional traders up or down. So then you got the market makers in between that are basically uh, trying to you know, make that spread uh, between the bid and the ask. Um, and you know, kind of manage um, those two different types of traders, and the market makers again are kind of like the volatility guys. But then you know, so hope that wasn't too complicated. No, that's good. So, so in that case, do you suggest to options traders, uh, probably more newer options traders, that they either specialize in one or the other? They're either directional or non-directional trading. Or do you feel as though it's worthwhile to have a well-rounded approach? Um, I think if you are a new options trader, you need to really read up on what options are. Now, not like me as a trader trainee back in the day, but you got to know, I mean, most, mostly the new traders can only buy options, but you have to realize how much capital that you're putting at risk. So it's, Definitely wise to be a directional guy first because at least, you know, if you're buying volatility, you're buying a call and a put. So, yeah, you know, as long as the stock moves heavily in one direction, either one, that's fine. But most likely you're going to buy the wrong options. They're too far out of the money and you're going to be, you're going to waste your money on the premium. So it's good to know, um, you know, what you're spending your money on, you know, the time frames. That's more important. Like if you're gonna invest a thousand dollars in investing is a, I'm using that term loosely. If you're going to if you're going to bet a thousand dollars on an option, you should know, you know, what that thousand dollars is offering you. It you know, the stock needs to move five percent in three days. That's probably stupid unless it's a name that does move five percent very often. Um, so that's more important just to understanding the time frames that you're trading um, and the realistic goals of that stock. Um, and you know if you think it could just move because there's earnings, you need to also know that market makers build in that earnings move into their option premiums. So if you're buying you know a call and a put, you're buying a straddle of, of say Amazon, you know, and their earnings are um, in a in, in, on a Thursday before expiration. You know, you realize that you're on one straddle. You're spending thirty as you're spending three thousand dollars. So you got to be educated. Do you think Amazon could move thirty bucks just for you to break even from the current from that strike price? So it's it's about knowing 
doing your homework on what you're spending your money on. Um, you know, a new trader could be a volatility trader. I don't expect them to be. Usually a new trader that's trading options was a stock trader at first. So now they want to leverage their money by going directional, by buying a call or buying a put. And that's fine, but you got to know your time frame. You got to know that, okay, I'm going to buy this call or put, but if it, that stock doesn't move by the you know end of the week or in, in the end of the month, then you're going to be out X amount of dollars. Whereas stock, at least that stock's not going to expire. You know, So you got to understand those concepts. Okay, so you really emphasized the importance of, of doing your homework there before you even get started. Um, are there any, any resources or any books or any educational material just off the top of the, your head that you, could, that you would perhaps recommend um, to anyone who's keen to get deeper into options? I certainly do. Uh, Natenberg, uh, I think it's John Natenberg. That's, that was the Bible as a floor trader. Uh, Natenberg is number one. You know, it's uh, two, three hundred pages. I forget. It's uh, it's that's that's the Bible for option trading, um, for understanding the different types of trades, uh, spreads, things like that, and learning about volatility in the Greeks. So that's good. John Hall has a good book. Uh, those are the, those are the two that I recommend. I don't know any uh, any other newer ones. Um, I'm sure there's some Wiley books, but I don't I don't really know much about them. Okay, and what are the titles of those two books? Um, let me just let me look it up right now, just for everyone to have. Okay, yeah, it's Sheldon Natenberg. Sorry, Sheldon Natenberg. Uh, Option volatility and pricing. <laughs> Creative title. <laughs> um, yeah, so that is it's uh, it's on Amazon. It's thirty five bucks, newer used. I suggest buying the cheap used version, and uh, that's. Basically, the only thing you need to know. Uh, but it's geeked up. There might be a dumbed-down version of something else. But again, that was the first time um, that I, uh, you know, that was the first book that I read. Actually, John Hull was the first book that I read. That was while I was at Georgetown. Uh, let me look at that one. That is uh, options, futures, and other derivatives. John Hull, John C. Hull. Okay, that's, excellent. That's what I learned at Georgetown. Yeah. So cool. Right. Um, yeah, those are the top two. And I actually, and I have a course on saying Lucci about introduction options as well. Sure. Okay. Kind of yeah. Well, I'll make sure to add links to, to all of that in the show notes. Um, so that, that'll be available at chatwithtraders.com, uh, to everyone who's listening. Well, this is, uh, this has been really good. Um, we should probably start to wind things down. Um, let me just ask you one last question. Um, still around the topic of options. Um, what would you say is one of the areas where traders new to options most often come unstuck? I mean, is there anything particularly important that sometimes gets ignored by newer options traders? I mean, you already hit on uh, homework and obviously preparing yourself beforehand, but is there anything else that comes to mind besides that? You know, I mean, it's just a lot of times it's disappointment that the um – I mean, I already talked about it that, you know, you wasted money, you bought an option and nothing out. You actually just watched your money go down the toilet. So um, that's one thing. But then, you know, if you are able to sell options, the key is, is knowing what your your uh, worst case scenario, um, your, your max loss is. That's very important. Now, when you buy an option, max loss is how much premium you paid plus commission. Um, if you're able to sell options, say you're a rich guy, say you're a guy that has, you know, your first time trader, but you know what, you have $50,000 in your account, 
they're going to let you sell options. You got to know what your max loss is. You got to know that if you sell a call in, say, a biotech and the stock rips um, because of an FDA approval, you know, say you sold, say the stock's trading 10 bucks, but you sold a $15 call, you're like, oh, this is so expensive. It's worth two bucks sold. The stock could go to 30 bucks in the morning and you're out. Uh, two hundred thousand dollars, and the and the clearing firms like you owe us one hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's something that's very important. So that being said, it's important for you, um, as a say a new premium seller, a new option seller, to cap your risk. And by doing that, uh, the way to do that is to to spread it. So if you sell, uh, say that twenty dollar call, buy the twenty five call against it, so that you know what your max loss is, and that's very important. If you sell a call. Buy a higher call against it. If you sell a put, buy a lower put against it to have your max loss. And that's the most important thing I can say because it's all about preservation of capital, especially when you're selling options. Uh, it's very risky. And uh, I do that to this day. I, I, I spread everything. You know, with Apple, I didn't as much when I was market making with my hand because, <laughs> I mean, Aside from you know one or two instances, um, Apple was I had confidence in that, but that was still stupid. You got to preserve the capital, hedge your risk, um, and going back to if you can sell options and you're long premium, it's always good to you know say you want to buy a call because you think a stock's going to go up. It's not nothing's wrong with selling a higher call to to hedge your uh, your premium risk so you don't lose all of your say two thousand dollar. Uh, investment, you know, you might get 500 bucks by selling a call against it. So, you know, it's all about hedging stuff and, you know, not everything's going to be a home run. There's no, that's the other thing I have to say is, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking some of your profits off the table. Even if you think the stock's going to keep going up, you never know what's going to happen. There's always, you know, some fun that's trying to sell some of their position. Carl Icahn could just all of a sudden dump out all its Netflix shares and you'd be like, I should have sold those calls. So, when in doubt, get out of half. That's the, that's the other thing I could say is when in doubt, get out of half your position. <laughs> awesome. Love it. All right. Another brilliant answer, uh, Brian. Thank you very much for doing this interview. Um, I think options guys are really going to enjoy this. Um, and I think uh, everyone else is going to find it really insightful as well. So uh, before you run away, do you want to share with listeners where they can go to find out more about you and connect with you? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, Sanglucci.com. S-A-N-G-L-U-C-C-I.com. Um, I uh, featured partner there. Um, and then also I am uh, on Twitter, Dirty Automatic, uh, K at the end instead of a C. That was my DJ name and that's been my Twitter handle forever. Dirty Automatic is my – and you can ask me questions about options anytime you want. I always respond. I love talking about them. So either or, I am available. Okay, well, in that case, I mean, would you be happy to answer any of the listeners' questions if they just leave a comment uh, below this interview? Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. Well, there you go. If anyone has any uh, questions about options um, or trading in general, just leave a question below this interview at chatwithtraders.com. All right, Brian, again, thank you very much for doing this, man. Have an awesome day and let's talk soon. Thanks, you too, brother. That was fun. Thank you. You've come to the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but don't worry, more great episodes are on the way. To stay updated with each great new episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, and we'd love it if you leave us a rating and review. We'll see you next time on Chat with Traders.